Imagine, Alex, that you're climbing and there's this tiny little rock, you know, but when you move, you move it out of place and this massive boulder <laughs> topples over, right? I mean, it takes one small person doing one small thing and you can topple the whole thing. You just don't know. Our natural world inspires and shapes us, so it's more critical than ever that we work to protect it. I'm Alex Honnold, professional rock climber and founder of the Honnold Foundation, and this is Planet Visionaries a podcast in partnership with Rolex's Perpetual Planet Initiative and the Washington Post Creative Group. Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative support explorers, innovators, and visionaries who strive to protect our natural world. I'm proud to be bringing you some of their stories from the cutting edge of conservation. On this episode, I get to talk to Christina Mittermeier and Paul Nicklin, Two marine biologists and visual storytellers whose work instills hope and motivates sustainable action against climate change. Hi, guys. Great to talk to you today. Great to be here, Alex. It is so much fun to be here, Alex. Thanks for having us. Oh, my pleasure. We never met Alex in person before, so this is exciting. <laughs> so exciting. <laughs> we we saw you, Alex, in uh, Punta Arenas. We were eating at a restaurant and you oh, yeah? walked you walked right outside and Paul's like, oh my God, there goes Alex Honnold. You had an entourage of like 30 people following you, so we left you alone. Uh, yeah, well, you know, <laughs> so let's just dive into what we're, what we're doing here. I mean, can you guys just start by introducing yourselves? I'm a contributing photographer to a number of publications, including magazines like National Geographic and Time. But more importantly, I am the co-founder of a nonprofit organization dedicated to saving the oceans called Sea Legacy. Paul? And I'm a conservation photographer and filmmaker, a storyteller, co-founder of our organization called Sea Legacy, 20 years with National Geographic as a journalist, and great urgency to try and fight to work towards saving our oceans. But so how did you guys both get into photography? You know, I grew up in the Arctic with the Inuit in Baffin Island, one of four non-Inuit families in, in a community of 190 people. No, no telephone, no radio, no television. So I really literally spent my entire time outside playing in the ice and the snow. And I just absolutely fell in love with this icy world. And I knew I was going to do something to do with it, but it didn't feel like anything was available to me to become a photographer. So I went off to university, became a biologist, but started scuba diving at a young age of 18. And absolutely fell in love with the underwater world. But, you know, after a while of, of being a biologist, I realized that I could better serve wildlife populations by bridging the gap between the public and these the big issues concerning these animals by becoming a photographer. And then it took me another seven years to get noticed by National Geographic. And then I shot there for 20 years on assignment and then uh, started to realize that we could beat our own drum daily through social media channels, build our own platform through you know, by building an organization like Sea Legacy. And so now I shoot film and, and stills for, for our own nonprofit, mostly. Nancy, Christina? You know, I never wanted to be a photographer. I just, I love nature. I love wildlife and animals. And I grew up in the mountains of central Mexico, Mexican family, a lot of children, played a lot outside. And when I had to make a decision to go to university, I ended up going to a school in the Gulf of California where they were teaching fisheries and aquaculture in a biochemical engineering major. You were learning how to can turtle meat at the time, the best ways to can turtle mm -hmm. meat when you think back. Yeah, I mean, by the time I graduated, I knew I didn't want to be part of that. And I did a 180 and became a conservationist. And I went to work for Conservation International. And I was a scientist, so publishing the scientific literature, just kind of like trying to shout from the rooftops that our planet is in a lot of trouble. 
And I realized that science was not the most accessible language to vast numbers of people. It's complicated for people to understand. So, you know, you don't, you never want to feel stupid when you're confronted with data. So people reject it a lot. And then one day I met a photographer and he invited me to edit a book with him. And I wrote the text and he had the pictures. And the day that we launched the book, I could see that people were browsing through this incredibly beautiful coffee table book. And they were not reading anything. They were just looking at the pictures. And importantly, they felt comfortable enough asking questions about those pictures. And I had this aha moment, you know, that photography, it really lowers the, the price of entry and is an invitation for people to enter what I think is the most important conversation of our lifetimes. It's exactly how reading with my daughter is now. You ignore the text, you focus on the photos, and you just sort of <laughs> describe what's happening in the image. Like It works. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, it it does work. And it, it's interesting that you guys both went from a career of science into into basically storytelling because you think it's a more useful way to, to achieve the same ends. Yeah, but science is very important. I mean, and we still are very, you know, in, embedded in the scientific community and really trying to help a lot of our scientist friends tell their stories in a better way. I always say that, you know, everything we do in the visual space in photography and storytelling and filmmaking, it has to be that intersection of art, science, and conservation. It has to be very powerful, beautiful, evocative, engaging, a great conversation starter, but it has to be based on fact. It has to be based on science. It has to be. Uh, and then of course, it's all about driving people towards that, that conversation on conservation. Paul and Christina's organization, Sea Legacy, was born from their shared desire to do something positive for the planet. So how did you guys meet? And then how did, you know, how did Sea Legacy come about? So when I met Paul, he already was a legend at National Geographic. And I had been working for Conservation International, mostly, you know, creating this new discipline called conservation photography. I had started the International League of Conservation Photographers and my aspiration was to become part of the cadre of National Geographic photographers that were contributing to the magazine. So on the day of my first ever business meeting at National Geographic headquarters, we were having a breakfast and I was so nervous because I didn't know a lot of the people in the room, but I knew that they were the legendary iconic photographers. And Paul wasn't there, but um, when he came in late, there was only one chair left and it was next to me. So. I was wearing corduroy bell bottoms with a plaid shirt. I was looking really looking my best. <laughs> and I was so nervous when he came in. I thought, oh, you know, he, this is somebody because I had heard him speak and I knew that he was funny and he was Canadian. And I just was like, you know, when you get nervous and you say stuff that just comes out of your mouth, I said, please. She said, come. Why don't you sit down next to me here and flirt with me with the words out of her mouth? And I'm like, <laughs> A shy Canadian, like, who is this woman? <laughs> but um, yeah, we, I sat down, did, did as I was told. <laughs> Classic. So that was a long time ago, and we've been together ever since. So how did you guys found Sea Legacy? Actually, I was up in the Arctic. This Canadian woman and her family said, hey, we want to go see polar bears. And I'm like, all right, I guess, you know, I'll go up and show you some bears. Um, as, as one does. As one does. And we're just cruising around up in Svalbard, Norway, you know, 600 miles from the North Pole, when a place that historically is covered in sea ice year round. And there was no sea ice anywhere, not even this famous bay called Bjornsson, where it's, you know, named Bear Sound. 
and there was no ice and we weren't finding any bears. And finally, one day I looked up on the hillside and I see a bear sleeping. I'm like, thank goodness, I can finally show him a bear. The pressure's on. And I sat there in the boat, watched it for a while and realized it was a dead bear. And I walked up to it and right next to it was another dead bear. And was, these two siblings had starved to death. You know, as a biologist, when I worked with polar bears, we never found dead bears anywhere. But all of a sudden now we're finding starving dead polar bears on land, floating in the water. I just felt this urgency. And I said, Christina, like, is there anything we can do using the model that you built with the International League of Conservation Photographers where we can build a nonprofit? And I mean, I was, again, against social media originally. And I think the first million followers came pretty quickly because of National Geographic and then two, three, four million followers. And that's back when social media had pretty good engagement. I'm like, wait a minute, if we have 4 million and if I have 4 million, you've got 2 million and Sea Legacy's got, you know, like we can grow this to millions. All of a sudden we can build a pretty big community that when it comes to these issues and beat that drum pretty hard on, on a conservation issue. And that's kind of how it, how it came to be. And, and we've sort of been on this path ever since. I love the Sea Legacy mission, the global marketing, education and communication agency for the ocean. I was like, that's a really bold statement, but also kind of genius in its way. Where I was like, oh, that does make sense. Oh, my God. If the ocean is one of the largest economies on the planet, you know, be like a large business, it would have its communications and marketing agency, but it doesn't. We are terrestrial creatures. We breathe air and we walk on land. And therefore, we think that the planet should be called Earth. But 70% of it is actually salt water. It's ocean, so it should be called ocean. And over 50% of the biodiversity of the life on planet Earth lives in the ocean. Just, that just blew my mind. It should be called planet water. You're totally That's right. right. We, we all live on planet water. And if you open the hood, it would only be salt water in there because that's the engine of planet Earth. <laughs> and yet planet we don't water. know. <laughs> exactly. We don't know how it works. We don't know the ecological processes. We don't know the consequences of what we're doing to, to our planet. We're just beginning to understand it. So that's a model that we've been using, you know, these, the photography, the celebrity to create a media moment in a place that needs attention. But are there ever actual long-term conservation wins? We have had wins and, and nothing, you know, even getting a cover of National Geographic or selling a big fine art print or whatever, nothing will ever feel as good as a conservation win. Almost never are we doing it alone. But like, for example, you know, right in front of Los Angeles, in California waters, they have these mile-long nets that are just cast out throughout the night and they they're killing whales and dolphins and sea lions. They have a nine to one bycatch ratio. And so just to go down there and gather these visual assets, work with our partners and then get it banned at the state level. And then it took a little bit longer, but we just had it banned at the federal level. So now these nets are being removed from the waters. And it's like, it feels so great. And these conservation groups had been working on that issue for 30 years, a bunch of big players, but they just didn't have the reach. And there's this tipping point where you can just push these issues through and it, it feels amazing to have those wins and that's what we're always fighting for for trying to grow so we can help amplify the work of so many other great organizations taking on important causes mm -hmm. explain why visual storytelling is the best way to to promote these conservation issues we're a very visual species we love visual storytelling we love to look at pictures as you know with your child and as you know the world right now is we're just absolutely drowning in visuals as well so for us, it just has to be very powerful, beautiful, evocative visual storytelling just to Emotional. try and lure people's emotional, lure people's attention towards something like National Geographic was great, you'd, but you would only do a story every year or two. But now with these social media channels, you can beat this drum daily. Storytelling is one of the most effective ways that we have to convene people around the table. 
And humans, we communicate in stories. We always have. You know, the, the story of a guy climbing this mountain with no rope galvanized the world. You know, We can see it in our minds. And so storytelling allows us to bring the different stakeholders around the table to find common points of view. We felt like Sea Legacy needed to come in and supplement the storytelling so that people understand how important the ocean is. What is the the goal for you guys with Sea Legacy? I mean, the, the challenge of being the, the marketing agency for the ocean is, that, is, is work that never ends. Well, the goal for now is to grow it so that it outgrows us. And part of the goal is identifying other storytellers that can become part of the Sea Legacy universe so that Paul and I can rest so that we can then one day retire so that our organization outlives us through the work of other photographers that are younger, that are still keen, that are still, you know, fit to do the work. Something tells me that when you guys retire, it'll still just be on a boat taking photos of the ocean or <laughs> something along those lines. I, I, I sense that retirement will be much like your current life, but maybe with, with fewer demands and, and a more mellow schedule. That is 100% correct. And I feel like what Sea Legacy does in a huge way is remind us of the beauty of our planet and our ocean. I hope that in, you know, by the time we die, <laughs> when we're little old people, we can look back and know that we contributed to changing how the world sees our planet as our life support system. With the support of their partners, Paul and Christina have captured amazing images to help spread the importance of conservation. In, uh, in 2019, Rolex founded the, the Perpetual Planet Initiative. And so what does that initiative mean for you guys and, and how does that support your work? I mean, you can imagine what it feels like the day that Rolex phones to say, we admire the work that you're doing and we want you to become part of this amazing community that is trying to create a perpetual planet. And I like working with Rolex because they're so aligned with the vision. So I love perpetual planet because it really jives with my view of the world. And it's amazing to be supported by a brand that really cares. We are now producing a series of short films for Rolex about ocean conservation. And they have such a massive audience of people that are capable of supporting all sorts of projects. I mean, we are going to reach the proverbial one and a half degree increase in temperature by 2027. That is so much faster than we thought. And people don't realize what a little bit of increasing temperature can do, how devastating it can be for all sorts of ecosystems. We are at a critical moment. So for a company like Rolex to say, we're going to focus on conservation, I think it's huge. Yeah. So what are, what are the tangible results of this this partnership? Like, how, how are they supporting the work? It's all about getting the microphone to share the work, to share the stories, to highlight the important work that's happening in the front lines. So what are your hopes for the future of, of your conservation work? Yeah. Number one, make it seem possible. You know, we actually can turn this around and we can actually achieve this health for our planet and our future and our children. And I think it, it takes that shifting consciousness. People just need to all of a sudden become really aware in a way that we've never been before. Or we can continue living through hurricanes and floods. And wildfires. Mm -hmm. We need to give a path for all these people to get involved and in mostly in working towards protecting our oceans. And um, that's sort of like, I feel like it's our last stand. And I think this is sort of how my deathbed looks is, is sitting there, not, not with covers of magazines on wall or a fat bank account or pictures. It's going to be measured in, in massive conservation wins and a global community that's awake and, and focused and, and the energy is moving in that direction. And that's sort of, 
you know, maybe it's a naive belief, but it's the only one I'm going to hang on to. I mean, if I just sit around and feel the doom and gloom of our planet, I'm just going to go into a really dark place as well. And so that's why I stay active and stay focused and stay involved and, you know, try and really amplify the work of everyone else doing good work as well. It's just because it's, uh, we need that energy, that positive energy going in the right direction. So how do you guys each see the the next generation advocating for the environment? I mean, w- what inspires you right now that you see other people doing conservation-wise? I am very inspired by what I see in the front lines. You know, when we, we tend to think about the next generation as just American kids, but it's not. You know, there are young people around the world doing incredible things. So for me, it's finding those heroes that are out there fighting in the front lines alone and invisible and spotlighting their work so that they get the support and the notoriety that's needed to actually generate change. I mean, I love things like where Christina was just sort of scouting out French Polynesia. She goes into Morea. She meets all these young, basically teenagers at the time who are free divers and they, but they really care about the coral reefs and they're starting to replant coral reefs, but they have no funding, no, no money, no exposure. And, you know, Christina goes into a meeting and they're like, this is the most important meeting of our lives. They start to call Christina ocean mom. And Christina's like, what can I do to help you? And like, well, we need money. We need exposure. We need a microphone. So Christina went bing, 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 took some photographs. Fast forward a year and a half later, now they're sponsored by Rolex and and like... The Coral Gardeners, they're so sweet. They're like sweet, but they're doing just great work. But that's just all of a sudden everybody lifting everybody else up. And that's what we need to do for the ocean community. So I think that's what like Rolex helping us tell stories and help tell their story. All of a sudden we're all growing and amplifying each other. and, And that's what the ocean deserves. Well, I'll actually be speaking to Coral Gardeners in a few weeks for this podcast. So, you know, we're all doing our part to help elevate their work. Yeah. What advice would you guys each give to the average person on how they can help keep the planet perpetual? Very easy, you know. Close your eyes and imagine the future you want to inhabit. If you want to live in a beautiful planet where we have whales and dolphins and thriving ecosystems, you know, then we need to invest our energy, our influence, our money, our votes, our wallets, you know, into creating that future. You know, I always say that Like we think about money, we think about love, we think about, you know, whatever it is, 20 times a minute, we're thinking about all these things. We just have to start factoring in the planet that we want into that same decision making process. And if you factor in what type of planet you want, that's going to actually change a lot of your behaviors. And once you just take these little actions and get involved in this, you start going down this path and it feels really good to get involved. People just have to start, you know, rather than sitting there idle and again, being active, it feels so much better than being inactive. When people ask me the same question, that's generally where I start. It's like, well, you just start with something. Like, find the thing that you're passionate about. Find the thing that you care about. Like, and, and I often say start with the thing that's easy for you or the thing that you're most excited about. Because like, you don't have to start with the hardest thing. When I speak in public, I often tell audiences that you just have to imagine that you're wearing your invisible superhero suit, you know, and just declare yourself for something and just start doing it. There's ways that we all can contribute. Yeah, I will say, I think as as photographers, you guys have certainly found a great way to contribute. Thanks, Alex. Yeah, it's a, it's a long, long road ahead. 
but we're looking for a positive outcome on this one. And it's, it's going to be, it's, it's an uphill battle, but we're, we're going to keep fighting. Imagine, Alex, that you're climbing and there's this tiny little rock, you know, but when you move, you move it out of place and this massive boulder <laughs> topples over, right? I mean, it takes one small person doing one small thing and you can topple the whole thing. You just don't know. So we all have to try with our small contribution because it takes all of us to try to move the big boulders. Well, I mean, you guys are certainly doing a good job of, of, of helping to make that shift. I mean, honestly, looking at all the pictures last night, I mean, it's too bad that this is a podcast because it's really not the best medium to share the work <laughs> that you guys are doing. Because when I was looking through all the images, I mean, some of them are incredible. There were, there were a bunch of separate pictures that my wife and I looked at. We we're like, if we ever took a picture like this, we would just, we'd be like, well, we did it. Like, this is the best picture we'll ever take. We've accepted you're now in our marketing team for the ocean. Thank you. <laughs> You know, you have to come out with us at some point and we'll we'll show you things that will just blow your mind with the ocean. Um, you know, like we have we have a friend of ours who is a scientist in Papua New Guinea where we're headed soon. And he found a three. He figures uh, it, it, w- it would probably weigh 10,000 pounds, but it's a stingray had never been seen before. It's 18 feet long. It's six feet thick. We know you're fearless. We know you're cool, but uh, it'd be great to see this world through your eyes. So my point is you have an open invitation to come out on the Sea Legacy one with us and and uh, come and see some incredible things. I mean, I, w- I would love to do that someday. I definitely don't want to see an 18-foot stingray. <laughs> <laughs> Those were the amazing conservation photographers, Christina Mittermeier and Paul Nicklin. To see some of Christina and Paul's photography, visit their Instagram page. It's at Seed Legacy. I'm Alex Arnold. Thanks for listening to Planet Visionaries. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe, and leave a review to help others find it. Thanks for listening, and be sure to check out the next generation of environmental innovators at Rolex.org.